Amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. We are in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, uh, and we are uh, in the last hours of his life before the crucifixion. And we, I mean, it is narrowing down the, the conflict, the, the tension has built. It's, it's nearly at its crescendo, uh, and, and the reality is, is that Jesus has, uh, uh, man, he has some serious enemies that are after him. The, the Jewish leaders, he has been an affront to them, to their way of life, to their way of thinking, his teaching, his life has just driven them nuts. They, they, they have begun to not just despise him, but they literally hate him, and they want nothing more than to kill him. They want to be rid of him altogether. And so Judas, having been entered into by uh, Satan, decide, I don't know, sounded like the church lady when I said that, Satan. Anyway, sorry, I'll try to, entered into by the devil. Uh, he, he conspires with the Jewish leaders to... Um, to kill Jesus. And so this, this conspiracy is formed. Uh, Gen- Jesus' enemies, his, the traitor and, and, the, and the devil, they have determined that they're going to work together, and they do. But while they have a plan that they're working, Jesus has a plan of his own. And uh, in that process, he has determined that, uh, in reality, you step out of their of, of their plan, you step out away from it a little bit and don't get lost in the details of the text, you can see that their plan is actually working in his plan. Jesus isn't trying to oppose them. He's not going to stand against them, but he's actually going to use what they're doing. Their conspiracy against him is going to work to his plan. He, he plans to be arrested. He plans to die. He, he plans to let them kill him, but he will not be taken, he will not submit himself to them until he is ready, until it's time. So, so that's what's been happening. And, and, and here we're coming out of this passage where, where Jesus has spent time in the upper room uh, observing Passover. It was something he desired intensely to serve, to, to observe that last Passover and then give way to the, the first communion uh, with his apostles. And so he did. And at that time, he sat with them and he taught them. And the focus of his teaching was to prepare them for two things. To prepare, him, prepare his followers for his death. They needed to be made ready to see him die. They needed to be made ready to see what was about to go down, go down. And so he did. He prepared them for it. He taught them toward that end. But he didn't just prepare them for his own death. In his teaching, he prepared them to endure their own suffering, to face the battles that were coming at them. And then there's one final stop he's going to make before he he gives himself over, before he allows them to take him. There's one final stop he's going to make. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the side of the Mount of Olives, in a place he goes every night. Uh, As he has been in Jerusalem, he's left the city every night, and he's gone into the garden, and he has spent the evenings there, This night, we get to see what he's doing. He intends one final time to spend time alone with his father praying. On on his agenda, on his things to do, before he suffers and dies, he intends to spend time praying. And not only does he do that, but he actually calls his apostles to it. This is what's going to happen. I want to set you up for it. I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. He's not only going to spend time praying, he's going to call his apostles to pray as well. Seems natural, right? I mean, this is when you'd expect prayer to be front and center. This moment, this time of conflict and trouble, isn't that when we 
pray. Isn't that when we begin to recognize how important it is that we pray? Isn't, isn't trouble the thing that drives us to our knees in prayer? Or, or is it? Really what we're going to see happen today is in the face of trouble, Jesus prays and his apostles sleep. My hope as, we've, as we walk through this, as we look at this and study through it, my hope is, is that you will be both challenged in your own life of prayer but encouraged to pray, to see prayer for what it is, to understand, uh, get a bigger glimpse, to get, gain a broader understanding, to, to see prayer in a new light, that you and I together as God's people would, would be marked by prayer, that we, it would be the, the thread that runs through every aspect of our lives, that we would be a praying people. So Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, let's read it and see what the Lord has for us. And he, and he came and went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And he, and and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into into temptation. So here's Luke's account of of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to the, uh, or in comparison to the other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, it's a much more abbreviated, he doesn't share as uh, a version, he doesn't share as many details, he doesn't give us as, as much insight into what happens. It seems as if, as, as Luke was hearing the story and then recording the story, he wants to focus in on, he wants to hone in on three things. Jesus' is agony, it, it, is, it is right in the center of the story. We see the weight, the agony, the suffering that Jesus is enduring. He wants us to see what Jesus does in the face of this agony. In the, in the midst of this trying time, in the midst of this trouble that he's enduring, he wants us to see what Jesus does. Jesus prays. And then he sets that in contrast to what's happening with the disciples. They're sleeping. They are sorrowful. They are experiencing sorrow. But rather than that driving them to pray, they sleep. And so... Just consider, here they are arriving in the Garden of Gethsemane. They walk into the garden on the side of the mountain of olives. This was Jesus' practice. We see Luke has shared that with us already. Since he has come into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, he goes every day into the temple. He teaches all day in the temple. Then he leaves the temple. He leaves the city at night, and he goes out onto the side of the Mount of olives. He goes out that night, this very night. He goes to the same exact place that he's been going all week long because he's not hiding from Judas He's not trying to get away from what he knows is coming. He knows the betrayer has gone to do his work. He knows what the the rest of the night holds. He went to this place so that he could be found, and he could be found praying. He went to this place intentionally to spend this last moment before he allows himself to be taken to pray, to spend time alone with his father praying. This is his agenda. And he brings these 11 remaining apostles with him to do it. 
And he doesn't just go to pray. He goes to instruct them to pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's his command. That's his instruction. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, we could take this one of two ways because the, the way we interpret temptation, as soon as we hear that word, we immediately think of the, of the thing that leads us to sin. Like immediately in our mind, I think because of the way we've been trained in this and the way we interpret words and they become very specific for us, I, I think that's our first thought. Pray so that you may not enter into something that's going to lead you to sin. But the word in the original language has a broader meaning, has a broader ability to mean something more. It doesn't just mean things that could tempt us or lead us into sin. It also speaks to trials, to troubles that come upon us. It seems that Jesus is calling them to pray so that they might both re, uh, uh, potentially um, avoid certain troubles that come and avoid certain things that would tempt them or lead them to sin. The reality is when you put this in the context, it's, it's easy to see how it could possibly be both. If you were here last week, you'll remember the, 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 I, I showed you how Jesus is teaching at the table. The table talk was all about Jesus preparing them to be ready to face trouble, to make them battle ready, to make them aware that, that trouble is coming, that conflict is just around the corner. I summarized it in three different groups, although you could get more specific and you could point out each individual source of trouble. I think they represent three groups. I can't go into the de depth of detail I did last week. We don't have time for that. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to the sermon, read the word, study it, and I think you'll see how it breaks out. But those three areas or those three uh, uh, major big fronts that we face conflict are, are the are conflict with the world. First is conflict with the world. So, so Judas is the betrayer among them. He is one who is of the world. He's conspiring with those of the world, but he's counted in their number. He's on the inside. He's a spy on the inside, but he is not a member of their group. Only in appearance is he a member of their group. But not only will they face the spies among them, they will face trouble in the broader, wider world. Obviously, the Jewish leaders are bringing Jesus a lot of trouble. And in addition to that, he prepares them not to expect hospitality when they go out carrying on his mission. He prepares them to expect hostility, to be prepared to live in a very hostile world toward their mission. So there's conflict with the world. Second, the, the second place was the conflict with the devil. He told them, the devil seeks to sift you all. He wants to cause you to fail. He wants to make you stumble. He wants to, to make you fail. He does not want you to succeed in your purposes and in your mission. He wants to lead you astray. He, he is seek, he's a lion, as we read earlier. He's a lion seeking to devour. This is who the devil is. And that conflict is real, and they were to expect it. He was telling them to be on guard against it, to be aware that it was coming. And then third, they were told that there was going to be conflict within their own sinful flesh, their own selfish desires. In this moment, as, as they're celebrating the Passover, you just consider what's going on in that event in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover, which calls to attention all the work that God had done throughout history on behalf of the Israelites. He's instituting, at the last Passover, he's instituting the first communion calling to attention all the work that he is about to do on behalf of his people, that he is the sacrificial lamb, that he is establishing the new covenant that God had been promising by his own blood. And what do they do? They argue about who's the greatest. 
They're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about, well, hey, I, I must be great. They're, they're, not, they're not trying to figure out how in the world this could be. They're, they're concerned with who's going to be the greatest among them. And then Peter, the spokesman of all these people, these, these self-centered, selfish-minded people, these 11 apostles who, would, who truly were of God's people, He's saying, I'll, I'll follow you to prison. I'll, I'll follow you to death, Jesus. I'm ready. And Jesus tells him, no, no, you're not. You're not as great as you think you are, Peter. You are going to deny me. Before the night is out, you are going to deny me. You see, he showed them that the, the, the reality of the conflict is, is real in this world. The, the reality that we are going to face trouble, that there is battles raging all around us, is a real thing. They should sense and know the trouble. He's not only told them about their own troubles, but he's told them about his own. Yes. He's let them see that he's going to be arrested and killed. He's prepared them for that. You would think, you would think that when they hear him say, pray so that you may not enter into temptation, which could be trial or something, some, some desire that leads us into sin. You would think that they would remember there's going to be conflict with the world. That's going to bring, that could bring me trouble. That could tempt me to sin. There's going to be conflict with the devil. That, that could lead me to trouble. And that's not the kind of trouble i got to go find. Like, that's the active enemy seeking to bring me trouble. You'd, you'd think they'd remember that he told them that they would be fighting against their own flesh. A flesh that desires to sin because we all have a sinful nature. And a flesh that endures trouble because of our sin and the sins of others. You, you would think that they'd hear the, the, the value, that they'd hear the importance, that they'd hear the call to pray. And they'd pray. See, I think this... This highlights the, the central theme, the, the central purpose of why Luke shows us in this abbreviated form this passage. Why he doesn't give us all the detail because he wants us to focus in on what is happening between Jesus and his apostles. He is calling them to pray. Not simply because he needs them to be aware that there is trouble coming. But he intends to show them that they have been given an answer to the trouble that's coming. He wants them to see that they need not only be aware, that awareness is only half the battle, but that they have been given power to fight the battle, but not with fists and swords, but in prayer. His call to them to pray is showing them that there's an avenue, a, a way in which God intends us, his people, to be empowered for the path he calls us to walk. This gives us the central theme, I think, of what, G, or what Lucas is showing us here. Jesus calls us to pray so that even in the deepest darkness, we find his shining light. 
He calls us to pray, not to put another check mark, check mark on our agenda or not, not to give us just another thing to do. He calls us to pray because it's in prayer that in the deepest of darkest situations, we find his shining light. We find power. We find provision. We find answer. We find certainty. Prayer has been given to God's people as a gift. And he longs for us to run to it. It's always been a gift to God's people. Even before Jesus, the psalmist writes in Psalm 50, verse 15, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. It's a promise that when you call on him, he will deliver you. I will call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. In the calling upon him, it's a glory to him. In the calling on him and in his delivery of us, it's his delivery that brings glory to him. We become the agents of him demonstrating his power and presence in the world. Prayer has always been a gift to God's people. And after the apostles learned their lesson, they became a people of prayer. It's marked all the way through the book of Acts. You can see them praying. Turning to God in prayer. And the church, as a result, those who follow after the apostles become a people of prayer. Such that when James writes his letter to the church, James chapter 5.13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I mean, it's it's a question that doesn't even have to be asked, really. Is is anyone among you suffering? Uh, Yes, they are. I imagine you're here. I imagine if we went around the room, there are certainly things we can celebrate. But I wouldn't doubt if every one of us, if we slow down long enough to just consider it for a minute, there's trouble in our life. Maybe trouble you just got past, but still been in trouble. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And and singing praise, that's just another form of prayer. Celebrating that God has fulfilled his promise to deliver you. Do you have a reason to be grateful? It's because of God. Sing praise. (laughs) And hey, by the way, when you you finish praising him and you step into your next, next circumstance and you find trouble, pray. It almost seems like God expects us to pray always. Maybe. I think I read that somewhere once. This is his gift to us. This is his intention for us. And here we are in the garden after he makes him aware of all the trouble that, that is coming them, that surrounds them, after he's drawn out the battle lines for them, and they can see that they are surrounded on every side and that there are spies within their own camp and they just might be it. He brings him into the garden and he says, pray. And they sleep. Now Luke was really nice. They are sorrowful, like they're wore out. This has been a long, difficult day. Luke's really nice and he's like, they sleep for sorrow. They could have prayed. Before we're too critical on the apostles, I think you already kind of know this is coming, right? Maybe you even already feel it a little bit without me calling it out, but let's, let's, let's just not 
take any chances. Let's call it out. Let's just ask some questions about this. Is prayer the first thing that we go running to? Is it the thing that we prioritize in our plans? Like, are, are we ensuring that we have time to pray? Jesus wasn't going to allow himself to be arrested before this moment, in, alone in the garden with his father. Are we prioritizing prayer? Are we making sure that that's part of the, the, the flow of our life? Or are we more likely to say that we're just too busy? Yeah, I, I'm just too busy to pray. Man, I'm so tired after a long day at work. I just don't have the energy to pray. What is it, then, that puts you on your knees in prayer? What is it that drives you to the cross of Jesus Christ pleading with him in prayer? What is it, what is it that moves you to pray? What is it that drives us to this place? I told the first service this. Maybe you've heard this story already. I wasn't intending to share it. It makes me look really bad, and so I typically try not to do things like that. But it makes a point, and it'll free you, I think, to, to make a point for yourself. So many of you have heard my story about driving down the road, listening. I'm on my, I'm on my motorcycle going about 55 miles an hour. I had just stopped uh, earlier, and I'm wearing headphones, and I'm listening to uh, Jesus music and and riding my motorcycle, just enjoying the day, and um, stop, and I pull out my phone, and I change the music, because there's a certain song I want to hear, and, um, and, and I put it back in my pocket, but I guess I didn't get it in deep enough, and I'm going down the road, and it falls out. It just, I'm, I'm like, oh, man, so I stop as fast as I can, but I, I have no idea where this phone has gone. Like, I felt it, felt it fall out of my pocket, and I was wearing wired headphones, and so so I felt it jerk on the wire, and then all of a sudden it went light, and the phone, I kind of see it off in my peripheral vision, skittering away, and I don't know where it's gone to. I don't know if it's in one piece or a bunch of different pieces. I don't know what kind of condition it's in. There's a car behind me, so I can't stop immediately, and I've got to go to the next place that I can get off the road safely and, and get turned around and go find my phone. And I find myself in the midst of looking for this phone because I, I'm, I'm on a trip the next day. I'm headed to Nashville, and I need the phone so I can be able to communicate with Amy. I, can't, I just can't imagine going to Nashville and not talking to my beautiful wife because I'm such a great husband. So, so yeah, you got that. Um, it's true. I wanted to be able to communicate. But in addition to that, phones aren't just phones anymore, right? Like every ounce of my information, I access to all of my finances are on my phone. Maybe I shouldn't be telling you that, but it's true. If you could break into my phone, you can, you can ruin me as a, as a person. I mean, just the, it's the reality of it. And I am thinking, oh, in the world, do I just leave this phone? Maybe nobody ever finds it, but what if they do? And so there's this fear that creeps up inside of me. I find myself praying repeatedly, over and over, praying the same prayer. Lord, help me find this phone. Walking up and down the side of the road. Please let me help, help me find this phone. Help me make sure that it's okay. I, for, I, I searched for that phone for two hours. Prayed that prayer for two hours. I didn't find it. But in the middle of all that searching, in the middle of all that pleading and praying, I'm, slapped in the, I'm just slapped across the face with this. I, I, I didn't hear him say it, but I, I certainly felt him say it. This is what drives you to pray? This is why you pray? 
This is what moves you to be before me pleading? Eventually, I was blessed by God. He, he did allow me to find the phone. It was, fortunately, in one piece. I was able to use it. But more than that, I learned. Oh, man, I learned a lesson that day. It's funny because as I realized and sensed this, this, this is what leads you to pray. I, I tried not to pray that prayer. Like I didn't want to continue to admit that this is the thing that drives me to pray. Instead of thinking, I just need to be praying like this over a lot of other things, I tried to figure out ways to ease my conscience and just quit praying about my phone. What kind of things keep us on our knees before God? What is this? What is it that's so important to us that, that, that we would devote ourselves to prayer? Is there, is there anything? Is there reasons that you find yourself just pleading with God? Or is there always a really good reason to sleep? I mean, I think, I, I have a sense, and I, I could be wrong, but I have a sense that, that if we really understood the, the seriousness and the reality of the battle that we are surrounded by. I, I think we, I, I don't think I'd even have to preach about prayer because I think we would just be prayers. I, I don't think that the church at, at large, not just this church, not, not, not just this church, but, but churches all across the country, I don't think if we understood the reality and the seriousness of the battles and the conflicts that we face, that prayer meetings would be the least attended meetings in our buildings. I don't think that that would be a difficult thing to fill up our prayer teams if we understood the seriousness and the intentionality that we're called to in prayer. If we really understood that we are weaker, smaller, less capable, much more needy than we like to think, I don't think that prayer would be something we'd have to call each other to anymore. I just think it's probably something we would do. I have a sense that if we understood both the absolute blessing the gift that we have been given in prayer, that we'd be much more likely to find ourselves praying than turning on Netflix. I have a sense that if we understood better who God is and what he can do, we would value this gift even more. Unfortunately, I think we're more often like the apostles than Jesus which Luke contrasted in this passage against these sleepy disciples. See, Jesus' life of prayer had always been, it had been an ongoing theme all the way through Luke's account of Jesus' life. This is not, Jesus didn't wait to pray until the night before the cross. Jesus has been praying all along the way, over and over and over. Luke, like no other gospel writer, ensures that we see Jesus removing himself from the crowds, going off to be by himself, by himself and be alone with the Father. We see Jesus going off to pray. One of, the, one, of the, one of those examples is the night before he calls his apostles, he separates himself from the crowds. He separates himself from his disciples, and he goes to the mountain, and he prays by himself. And it tells us in the, context, in the, in the text that he prays all night. He doesn't go to sleep. He prays all night long, seeking God's wisdom and God's presence and seeking his Father's will. 
And he comes down, the very first thing he does is he calls out from among the multitudes, he calls out 12 men to be his apostles. And now, here again, at this critical juncture in his ministry, he doesn't put off prayer, he makes certain that he gets to pray. You think he's not tired? He's carrying a weight that those disciples don't even understand. The text tells us that he is agonizing over this. In John, it tells us that he feels this, that that his soul is sick unto death, like it is weighing on him. He's not waiting to feel the weight of sin and the weight of his sacrifice at the cross. It starts here. He is weighed under this, and you think that he's not tired? You think that his body doesn't want to give in to to to, to the call of sleep? But here he is in the garden making certain that he gets alone with his father and he is agonizing. He is in anguish and feeling the weight of this. And you might wonder, well, how in the world? This is Jesus we're talking about for crying out loud. Like, he's God. Why is he in agony? I, I, I don't want us to forget that as he is fully God, he is fully man. And he is carrying a weight that none of us really fully understand. That he is carrying a weight that we can't even grasp. Nor- Norval Geldenheis, in his commentary, New International Commentary, it's the older version, writes this. It's long. Listen, the, the words are on the screen. Please pay attention to it. It's important. It is impossible for him, that's Jesus, it is impossible for him in his perfect humanity not to experience a feeling of opposition to the idea of impending humiliation, suffering, and death. It's impossible for him not to feel it. He goes on, and all this is made the more intense through his knowledge that he is not only going to suffer and die, but that he will have to undergo this as the expiatory sacrifice for the sin of guilty mankind. The holy and just wrath of God against sin falls on him in full measure because he has put himself unreservedly in the place of guilty mankind. The judgment pronounced on sin is death, spiritual as well as physical. And spiritual death means being utterly forsaken by God. How dreadful then. How dreadful then must the idea have been to Christ who had from eternity lived in the most intimate and unbroken communion with his Father that he would have to endure all of this. John Calvin, writing about this moment in the garden and the agony that he endured in the garden, writes, He had no horror at death, therefore, simply as a passage out of this world, but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God. His father was about to become his judge. He had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because our sins, the load of which was laid upon him, pressed him down with their enormous weight, there is no reason to wonder, therefore, if the dreadful abyss of destruction tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. Listen. Jesus wasn't just going to die. Jesus was going to become sin and die. Jesus was going to be forsaken by his 
Father, Jesus was going to take the cup of God's wrath and drink it to the dregs for you and for me, for his people, that they could stand in the presence of God. Jesus was going to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus was going to take our curse so that we could enjoy his blessing. Jesus was going to be shamed so that we could walk in in the beauty of God's presence. Jesus was going to be cast out so that we could be received in. There's nothing that we can fathom that's like this because you and I are sinners who deserve His wrath. You and I have never known the intimacy that Jesus knew with the Father. You and I have never took on the weight of anyone else's sin. But here's the perfect, holy, righteous Son of God suffering with the weight of your sin and my sin and not just ours, but all of His people's. Tell me that wouldn't be agonizing. Tell me that wouldn't drive you to your knees. It would kill us. It would crush us. And here he is, not giving in to the weakness of his flesh, to the weakness and limitations of his body, but calling out to his father. Don't think he didn't want to sleep. And here he is, praying. Pleading with the Father. Doing exactly what he just called his apostles to do. And it's in this process, in this contrast, I think that we see three three principles I think that will help us. Three principles I think that will encourage us. Maybe they'll challenge us, but encourage us because in them we find God, who He is and what He can do. We find the beauty of the gift we've been given. We find again the reminder that this is not just an opportunity to be aware of our trouble, but to find power for our troubles. First, in prayer, we align our personal will to God's sovereign will. You hear this in Jesus' prayer. Father, If possible, if this cup could pass from me, let it be. Let it it pass. But not my will, yours be done. We want to be careful. There's not two wills within God. There is one will. We want to be cautious here. But we cannot mistake the idea of what he is doing. It's in this moment that we see Jesus has decided. He's been picked from before the foundations of the world. Somewhere along the way, back in eternity past, there's this conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We want to redeem. Well, we've got to figure out a way to do that because they're a sinful bunch of people. We haven't even created them yet. We know what's going to happen. They're going to sin and fall. We've got to find a way to redeem them. What are we going to do? Now, obviously, this is, this is, I don't know that it exactly went like this, but somewhere along the way, there was a determination that Jesus the Son would be the sacrificial lamb. Before the foundations of the world, 1 Peter tells us that. Somewhere along the way, that that decision was made. But in the garden, we get to watch it happen. We get to watch Jesus determine, certainly, to die on our behalf. If there's another way. But not my will, yours be done. And in this moment... The Son, 
sees two things happen. This is his father's will. Nothing changes, right? The outcome doesn't change. Jesus doesn't get out of death. Jesus isn't told, no, I'm going to go another way. So you're relieved of your responsibility. No, he doesn't get that answer. He's able to see this is God's will. In prayer, we align our personal will to God's sovereign will. We are shown God's will. When, when we're praying about things and we're seeking his will and we're seeking understanding and we're trying to decide, is this, is this what you want for us, God? If, if there's another way, let it be. I, I want this thing, but, but, but if it's a, I just want you to have your way. How do we know this is God's will? Because it happened. Because something else didn't happen. So when you're in the midst of trouble and trial and you're praying, God, end this, please take it away. It's too much for me. And it continues to happen. You know You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your good father is allowing it to happen for his good purpose. That's God's will for you. You don't have to question it any longer. If it wasn't his will, he'd stop it. In fact, he told his apostles to pray to avoid trouble because there are some things he'll stop. There are some things he'll relieve from you. There are some things that you can avoid. You want to know God's will. You want to align your life with God's will then don't try to figure it out. Pray, and he'll show you. He'll prove it to you. He'll lead you in it. Pray. In prayer, we align our personal will with God's sovereign will. We don't get to ask God to change his will and then decide to squeeze his will into ours. We don't get to say, hey, God, you need to follow my will. And if you don't, I'm going to follow my will anyway. That's not prayer. I don't know what it is, but I don't know that I'd call it prayer. Maybe rebellion. Maybe sin. Let's let's call it what it is. Maybe idolatry. Maybe that's the conflict Jesus was warning us against in our selfish flesh. Prayer is about us aligning ourselves under his will, trusting that when we call on him, if it is not his will, he will remove the trouble. In prayer, we align our personal will to God's sovereign will in this way. In this way, we avoid some, maybe many, temptations and trials. We spend time every day. Just consider this for a minute. If we spent more time in prayer, we'd have less time to consider the things of the world that tempt us. Right? We didn't watch so much junk that streams into our houses from, from the world we'd probably have less influence of the world on us. If we spent more time praying, we'd probably think about those things less. There's a natural avenue there, right? There's not a natural outcome. But not only would, be, would our minds be filled with, with, God's, with God's presence and God's purposes and God's truths and God's grace, not only would that fill our minds over the things of the world, but, but there would be things that he, he's telling us. I will remove from you. I will keep you from being tempted in this way. I will keep you from this trouble. If you're suffering, pray. If you're in trouble, call on me. I will deliver you. And you will glorify me. But let's not take it too far out of context. This doesn't say we're going to get out of every trouble. It's not a promise that we'll never experience trouble. In fact, as Jesus is calling his disciples to this and then setting the example in it, 
He doesn't get out of the cross. He doesn't get out of his own suffering. You see, the reality is, is that there are certain things that we must suffer, certain things that God has determined we must endure. I appreciate J.C. Ryle's point in this way. It kind of leads to this thought. It says, to be assaulted by temptation is one thing. There are, there, there's temptations, there's troubles, there's trials, there's, there's things that would lead us into sin that we can't stop from coming at us. We have no ability, we have no power to control it. To be assaulted by temptation is one thing, but to enter into it is quite another. We've been given the answer to avoid every trouble and every temptation, every trial that we can. To be assaulted by temptation is one thing, but to enter into it is quite another. We cannot avoid the attack, but we are not obliged to give way to it. We cannot prevent temptation coming to us, but it is our own fault if we fall to it. Because God has given us the answer. And it's not more knowledge. It's, it's, it's not more ability. It's actually to admit your weakness and fall on your knees and pray. And if you continue to endure, you can know that you are enduring what God has willed you to endure. It is his purpose for you to suffer that thing. In prayer, we align our personal will to God's sovereign will. In this way, we avoid some temptations and trials, if not many temptations and trials. Number two, in prayer, we find God's almighty power to walk in God's sovereign will. So if you're enduring, if you're suffering, and when you pray, you continue to suffer and you continue to endure the trial, know this, that when you walk into that, when you align your will with God's will and you begin to walk that path and you begin to endure this difficulty and this trial, that you will not just find God's sovereign will out, you will find God's power for God's sovereign will. He will give you what you need to endure that test or that trial or that trouble or that temptation. Once God's will is established, we see Jesus definitely facing this trouble. The cross isn't coming away. This is my will for you. You are going to die in their place for their sins. Instead of Jesus remo- or instead of the Father removing the, tr- the struggle, instead of him removing the trial, he sends an angel to him. He doesn't change the suffering, but he changes Jesus' experience in the midst of the suffering. He sends an angel to serve Jesus. He sends one of his own servants to give his son strength. Now, a lot of people struggle with this. Oh, this is Jesus. Why does he need an angel? Because at the same time that he's fully God, he is fully man. And in this most vulnerable of moments, this moment before the Father where he is opening himself up in agony, we cannot underestimate the weight of the trial that he was enduring Not only in his divine nature, but in his human nature. The father who said, I will deliver you, doesn't necessarily remove the trouble, but gives us strength to endure the trouble. Here in the midst of anguish, the father makes his will known. He provides and then provides Jesus with an angel to strengthen him, to enable him to walk in this struggle. 
So in prayer, we find God's almighty power to walk in God's sovereign will. In this way, we are made able, we can endure through temptations and trials. Brothers and sisters, so often we are overwhelmed by the struggles of this life. Not because they are so big, but because we have rejected or maybe neglected the the. The, the, the avenue to, to receive the almighty power of God. The very reason He may be allowing us to endure is that we would call out on Him. And yet that's not where we go first. What we see happening here is I think we need to slow down and pay attention. Jesus' agony was so real that Luke describes it. And, 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 and it, didn't, it didn't cease once the angel came, right? Like the, It didn't stop. Jesus didn't stop feeling the agony. He didn't stop uh, uh, seeing the need to pray. In fact, in, in, in the way the text is written, the angel comes and then he prays even more earnestly. It's almost as if in that moment, the the, the ministry that the angel provided for Jesus gave him strength to pray even more intentionally, more purposefully, to to be stronger and more intentional about what he's saying and how he's focusing on the Father. And he's praying so intentionally and so purposefully and feeling the weight of what's coming at him that Luke describes that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. It could be metaphorical. It could be that he's just trying to help us see how how heavy this is, but there it really is a physical condition. It could have been a real thing. I mean, let's just assume for a minute it's real that there's this, this physical condition. I forget what it's called. It's like hema, hema uh, I wrote it down, hematidrosis or hematidrosis. I don't know how you say it. I'm, not, I'm no doctor, right? So, so talk, to, talk to somebody here that went to medical school. I don't know, but there's apparently this real physical condition where you can sweat, where your body would just ooze blood. Let's just assume for a minute that this is a real thing, that Jesus is fighting against the temptations that are surrounding him. He has been tempted in every way we have. That he is fighting against these trials in his human form. And he is feeling the weight and the agony of it. And he is sweating blood. Gives a whole new perspective on the Hebrew writer's words when he says that we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Immediately when we read that in Hebrews, we think the cross. Jesus apparently, it appears, started bleeding in the garden because he is so intentionally focused on doing his Father's will and carrying this weight of sin and resisting. Resisting. And the angel comes and strengthens him to plead even more, to pray even more earnestly, to press in even farther to the grace and the goodness of his God, to his Father who loves him and knows him that he would enable him to endure in the midst of this struggle. In prayer, we find God's almighty power to walk in God's sovereign will. Once we've prayed and we understand that this isn't stopping and so it must be God's will for me, we can know that we can continue to pray and find power to endure whatever he allows us to endure for the very good purpose he allows to get out of it so that in the end we will glorify him. In this way, we endure through temptations and trials. We have ability. We have capability. We have power. 
Third, in prayer we seek God's supreme authority to accomplish God's sovereign will. It dawned on me this week as we were, as I was, uh, I had actually prepared much of this sermon over a week ago, and, and it dawned on me this week as, as I was just thinking on this, and I don't know, I, I read it in one of the commentaries that I, I read from, and I came across this idea, and it struck me. In the scenes that unfold after the scene in the garden, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue. He just walks into it. Now, the apostles are going to draw a sword and cut off the guy's ear. The apostles are going to run and hide. The apostles are going to abandon him and deny him. But Jesus, having been praying, having been wrestling with God, is ready to walk into the face of this trouble in peace. You see, the reality is, is this, 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 isn't, this isn't just the moment at which Jesus and God, where we get to, to actually view a, a view into this sovereign, divine relationship where the Father has determined that this is his will for his son and this is the son's opportunity for the whole world to see that he wasn't overthrown or overpowered. That it was his choice to die. That's not all that's going on here. In the midst of this, Jesus is calling on the only authority on heaven and in heaven and on earth that can say this will stop or this will keep going. He is calling on the supreme authority of God to ensure that God would accomplish his sovereign will. The things that are kind of unfold in front of him, the arrest that's going to take place, the kiss on his cheek that he's going to be betrayed by, the, the false accusations that are going to be made, even standing before Pilate when Pilate says, I have authority to kill you or not. He says, you only have authority over me because it's given to you from above. In prayer, on the garden, is the moment where Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. It was God's decision in that moment for all the world to see that Jesus didn't get Jesus didn't lose his fight. God is winning against the devil, the world, and our sin and death. God has determined that this is the way that he is going to provide redemption. And this, by his authority, he is the only one that can now withdraw it or keep it going. He is the only one to, with authority to say yes or no. Jesus didn't die because the Romans or the Jews were able to kill him. Jesus died because God crushed him. Jesus died because he knew that Isaiah 53 was a, 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 applies to him. He made reference to it at the table in the upper room. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 just say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God. Smitten by who? Not Jews and Romans, not you and me. Not, nothing about Gentiles. Smitten by God. And Jesus knows that this verse, that this prophecy is fulfilled in him. And he is calling on the supreme authority, the one, only one who has authority to say yes or no. He knows that, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He, he knows that these words from Isaiah come from his father and they are being fulfilled in him. He knows that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord. Capital Lord. His capital Lord because it's God's proper name. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God killed Jesus. It doesn't remove our responsibility. It doesn't remove the reality that he died for our sins. But he died at the supreme hand of his father. He was not defeated by some mere man. He was not defeated by some silly little army. He wasn't defeated by some religious system. He gave his life at the will of the one who carries ultimate authority, God in heaven. In Isaiah 53.10, just a few words later, yet it was the will of the Lord. Capital Lord, because it's Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to say it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The battle was waged way before Jesus got to the cross. When Jesus is wrestling in the garden, he is calling on the sovereign will of his Father. The only one who has authority to say yes or no. And out of his love for sinners like you and me, he said, yes, you will suffer and you will die so that I can call them righteous so that they can have access to me so that I can call them my own so that I can adopt them into my family. You will carry their stripes, and by them they will be healed. See, it was, this, it was with this purpose. It wasn't in vain that he did this. As he sought the supreme authority to accomplish God's sovereign will. And when, when we do this in prayer, when we seek God's supreme authority to accomplish God's sovereign will in this way, we, we, we can receive peace in times of, of temptation and trials. Not only do we rob ourselves of power by not praying, we rob ourselves of peace. We rob ourselves of the confidence of knowing that it continues. We continue to struggle and suffer because it is God's will. Because he has determined this is his way for us. So when we take a step, we can walk knowing that he is allowing us to endure only what he intends for us to endure, what he will use to sanctify us, to make us more into the likeness of his son. That's why Paul, when he was writing to the Philippian church, said to them, bring your requests with thanksgiving. Not, not, not <laughs> because you have to. Bring your request, the realities of your need, the realities of your dependence, the realities of your, of your problems, bring them with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Brothers and sisters, maybe we, we, we miss out on peace because, because we don't pray. Maybe we feel overwhelmed in the struggles and the trials of life and the temptations that lead us into sin. And we can't walk in peace because we're not praying. Maybe, maybe we give in to them. Maybe we fall before them. Maybe we fall into them because we don't pray. Maybe we don't even realize God's will and we walk in confusion and uncertainty because we don't pray. Jesus calls us to prayer so that even in the deepest of darkness we can find his shining light. His light that shines on the path of his will for us so that we can take the next step. His light that strengthens us to empower us to walk in the way he has called us. His light that gives us peace as it pushes back the depths of darkness that we walk in his light. 
Maybe you're one who has rejected or maybe just neglected the gift of prayer. I would encourage you, pray. Pray. Do not sleep that you will not fall into temptation. I'm not asking that every day. I don't think Jesus asked that for us every day, but that we would pray daily, regularly, always, that our lives would be marked by as a people who go to him in prayer. The beautiful thing about this, just in closing, let me just say this. The beautiful thing about this is that Jesus comes out after, after he has given instruction to pray and he goes a little further and he kneels down and prays and he is under the agony. When he stands up and comes back out and pray or comes out of his prayer, he says to them, why are you sleeping? He finds them sleeping. Why are you sleeping? But he doesn't condemn them in that moment. He doesn't say, leave. Get out of here, you're losers. You, sh- you should have been praying. I don't want anything more to do with you. You can't even do one little thing. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, I hope you'll not hear today as something that condemns you or causes you to feel guilty because you're not measuring up to some standards you have in your mind you're supposed to stand up in. I hope you'll hear God's invitation to call on him and pray. Quit sleeping. Start praying. He wants to bless you in it. He wants to protect you in it. He wants to empower you in it. He wants to give you his peace that passes understanding in it. Pray. Let's do that now. Father God, you are gracious and good to us. Even in our unworthiness, in the ways that we run from you and hide from you and depend on other things than you and devote ourselves to other, other powers and purposes and priorities than you, you continue to approach us in grace and hold out to us the blessings of your commands. So would you move us, Father, to prayer, to be a people of prayer? Would you teach us the lesson? Would you help us pray? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.